0: The idea that teaching type has to be this brick and mortar institution. That idea is kind of being chiseled away at, slowly but surely. And I'm just excited to see how people take advantage of that. Hey everybody, I'm Micah
1: Rich.
2: And I'm Olivia Kane.
1: Welcome to the weekly Typographic.
2: Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice.
1: It's going to be fun. Let's jump in.
2: This week, we're interviewing Trey Seals. Trey is a Washington DC-based type designer and founder of Vocal Typeco, a foundry that highlights histories of underrepresented groups of people through their catalog of typefaces. Since its founding in 2016, Vocal's mission is to introduce pieces of minority culture into the graphic design landscape, a landscape that has mainly been influenced by the work of white Eurocentric designers. Vocal Type's typefaces have now been used worldwide and have been spotted on countless graphics, including murals, protest signs, book covers, and in the brand identity for 2020's virtual March on Washington. Trey's work has also been recognized by many notable organizations. In 2018, he was recognized as the youngest winner of the Type Directors Club Senders Competition, and his work has been featured in several magazines, including Print, How, and Communication Arts. Welcome, Trey.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate
2: it. I'm so excited to have you here. And I think something that like I think is fun is that you are no stranger to the league. You <laughs> Not at and all. Micah have known each other for a few years, which I think is awesome.
1: That's wild that it's been a few years. I know. So Trey and I met when the league first did our type design class. And it was like this unbelievably intense three month stay up late every week and do live broadcast streams. It was only a handful of people. And Trey, I have to say like, as soon as you came into the class, our first thought, me and Thomas, who were running it, we were like, what is this guy doing in here? Like he's already good. What's going on here?
0: I think the problem was you didn't know I was using Illustrator before that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's true right yeah that was a really fun introduction we've like kind of kept up over the years but uh you're a hard man to pin down partially because you're so darn popular
0: yeah, it's it's kind of weird. I didn't know this was going to happen at all. <laughs> I thought starting a font company meant I just got to sit behind my computer all day and talk to nerdy people about <laughs> fonts in private.
2: Uh, you did it too I, well. That's the I didn't, problem.
0: I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know I had to actually be vocal. I thought that was just the name <laughs> I
1: came up with. <laughs> that's a good point. You literally asked for that. That's that's I, I Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm glad we were able to pin you down. We're certainly fans of your work. And And fans of you as a human, there are probably some listeners that don't know you. And I think it's always best to hear it from, you know, our guests' words and point of view. But how did you get into type design and typography and where you are today in an abbreviated sort of version?
0: So my parents actually put me in Montessori school when I was a kid. And they don't actually teach you how to write in print. They teach you how to write in cursive. So I kind of fell in love with writing in cursive at a super early age. I actually didn't learn how to write in print until my senior year of high school. (laughs) Um, So like typography was always there. And then in the fifth grade, I actually started my first business, graffitiing people's names on index cards for three bucks. That's baller. Yes. (laughs) Yes, so I started doing that while I was actually running the school store and i was like hey do you want to like have me do this instead and then from there i just kind of designed any and everything i could think of i designed bead jewelry tattoos lego jewelry posters i ran the comic book section of the school newspaper i designed three yearbooks during my senior year of high school um
2: I was also that design editor.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. So typography was kind of always there. I actually started designing my first font during my senior year of high school. I didn't know font design was a career. It was just something I felt like doing at the time. Mm. I started drawing it out. Never heard of Illustrator. I I, I barely used Photoshop on the (laughs) CD-ROM, but I figured one day I would know how to turn these random drawings into a typeface. And during my sophomore year of college, Still had no clue how to make a font, but I finally knew how to use Illustrator. So I released this vector font with five different styles and it was really popular. And that kind of really sparked my interest in type design. And then I had a boss during my internship in college and he just made me do type driven projects for every single thing. Hmm. First first week of my internship, I had to do a 12 foot tall chalkboard mural. (laughs) Whoa. Never did it before. (laughs) And he was just like, go for it. And I kind of been in love with type ever since. All those experiences com- kind of combined to form my love of type. I know that was a lot, but that was actually the short version.
2: <laughs> no, no, that was that was great. I I loved you know getting taken through that and how you know typography was always on your mind.
1: I heard they don't even teach cursive anymore.
0: That actually made me really sad when I found out about that when I was in college. That I actually made a blog called Better in Cursive, and every day for like two months. I would like post these quotes that I would illustrate in cursive.
2: You're in five places at one time, Trey. I feel like- (laughs) (laughs) My goodness, it's amazing to hear. And I know you touched a little bit about working as an internship, and I feel like you've always had the entrepreneurial mind since the graffiti note card days. Not many people are familiar with you as a brand designer and working in graphic design, which is where you kind of started to be for type design, which I think is pretty interesting. But I can see like a love of letter forms have clearly been throughout your whole life. And your your type design so successful in so many ways, whether that's conceptually or Crafted wise, I think something that's super unique that you didn't mention is that you're basically a self taught type designer, which is like very unusual. So I think, you know, so many people maybe have the love of typography or have written letters or have drawn letters in Illustrator, like you said you did, but it's the idea of bringing that to a font and leaping from being someone that just does graphic design to being someone that does graphic design and type design, and then just to type design is like, wow, that seems really overwhelming and very intimidating. But I think that like, you're not the only one that's in that camp, but I think you took the brave decision to, you know, veer into type design. What kind of led you to that moment of moving from graphic design to type design? And, you know, what would you suggest to other designers that are also thinking about that leap?
0: Okay. So, that's also a very long answer, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. After that internship in Minneapolis, this was back in 2014, I was like, oh my God, there's so many different things that you can do in the design industry. So, I'm going to make a pact with myself. And by the time I'm 25, I will be an internationally respected designer. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like, but I wanted it. I did every type of branding project I could find. I branded family members' businesses. I branded DJs' bands. And (laughs) anything I could find, I tried to brand it. Actually, I did it so much that by the time I graduated in 2015, I had already done work for Panasonic, Cold Foods, and Black & Decker. When I graduated, I went to work for the staffing agency. And for about two years, I worked for eight or nine different companies from agency to in-house studio and everything in between. Got a ton of experience. Like looking back, I feel like I wouldn't be in type design if I hadn't done all of that so early. Because like after two years, I'm like, I'm done with branding, branding sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, after going through those processes over and over and over again, I just got bored. And Mm. it got to the point where everything I saw just kind of looked the same. And in transitioning from branding to type design, I started convincing my clients, hey, let me make you this font for free.
2: That's incredible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it got to the point where I no longer enjoyed branding and all I wanted to do was work on your font. And that kind of started that transition from studio seals to vocal type. Um, I didn't expect it to happen as soon as it did but I'm really glad it did because I don't miss branding at all.
1: (laughs) You transitioned into starting to offer type design as a free add-on to clients that we're paying right? Correct. What was the first one that you did that with and what did that feel like?
0: It was weird actually my first client as soon as I graduated, it was this startup and they were like, we want to be the next better and bigger Under Armour. And it's right. basically like this sports uniform creation company. I'm not sure what you would call it, sports fashion brand. And I created their logo and made three typefaces based off of that logo. Mm, okay. And mm. their budget was like a hundred bucks. Oh, snap. <laughs> was, what? Yeah, but it was a paying client and I didn't know any better. <laughs>
2: When you're young. The things you do when you're young.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Like I I still kind of hit myself in the back of the head for charging what I charge when I first got out of college.
2: (laughs) I mean, you're definitely not alone in that. I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, you started your own design studio just months after college. And from what I've heard, you turned down a job offer or two. What kind of Convince you that you should be doing that and taking your career in that way. There
0: were quite a few amazing opportunities that came my way and I always think what would have happened if I had taken them but in the back of my mind my end goal was always becoming self-employed someday. I just didn't know when that would be and that's why I actually got incorporated three months after graduation. I took the opportunity that I felt I could get the most experience from, and I could learn the most from. And I picked the opportunity that I thought would help me with that. It's just about kind of having that end goal in mind, helped me make a bunch of decisions that I probably otherwise wouldn't have made.
2: Did it all go back to the pact?
0: Part of it, but at the same time, it was just that curiosity. (laughs) I felt like if I went and worked for one company For many years, I'd only learn how to create based off of one style and one aesthetic and based off of one design system and one design way of thinking. And that wasn't for me.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Did someone like guide you in those early days? Like freelance, I feel like to be successful at it, you kind of have to like aggregate other people's experience to like help you get started and get the ball rolling. Like what was that experience for you like?
0: I just, I just did it. I didn't ask anybody. It was, was, I was just like, I'm going to fake it till I make it. (laughs) Um, The only, as far as like pricing goes, the only advice I had was from one of my professors who was like, don't charge lower than $25 an hour. (laughs) That's very specific advice. (laughs) I know. And uh, looking back, I'm like, wow, I wish I didn't take that advice because it should have been more. (laughs) And that was like the only thing I had to go off at the time. And like since then, it's like I hate hourly pricing with a passion.
1: <laughs> Ooh, interesting. I'm excited to talk about that.
2: Micah, would you like to ask a follow-up question?
1: I, well, I'm just curious. You know, I mean, hourly pricing is such a standard starting point for everybody. And it's often very hard to learn any other way to do it. Yeah. So like, what was, a, I don't know, tell me tell me a lesson that you learned about pricing that, that changed the way that you did it.
0: It was when I found out about the day rate. <laughs>
1: I had uh. never
0: heard of the day rate until about a year and a half into freelancing. It was kind of like an evolution from there. Like after doing so many projects, you kind of have an idea of how long it takes to do something. And then from there, you get an idea of how many days it takes to do something. And then... Mm-hmm that just kind of became my standard price. Like it costs this much because it's gonna take me this amount of days and this amount of hours. So it was just kind of an evolution from hourly to standard base price for a project.
2: I think the day rate is sweet, sweet stuff. <laughs> definitely.
0: Oh, definitely. It's so much easier to keep track of.
1: Interesting. So at, at a certain point you you switched from hourly to chunks of hours, like here's a day. And then at a certain point that graduated to here's how long I'm pretty sure the project will take.
0: Exactly. And then it also got to the point where I hate talking about money. So if you would go on my website of Studio Seals, right, you would fill out the contact form. Before I even talk to you, you have to fill out all these different forms. You have to fill out one that tells me exactly what the project is, what services you want. And then you have to select your budget range. So I don't even have to talk to you about money. I just know what what your budget
1: is.
0: (laughs) And did that prove to be successful? Definitely. I actually didn't have any non-serious clients from that because they knew what the minimum was and they knew what they could afford. And that kind of let them know how serious I was about my work. Like I'm all about kind of building these systems around things. And that was one of my
1: most efficient, systems that's interesting too olivia you know that i love systems
2: (laughs) i know this is like makes sense why you guys get along so well
0: (laughs) oh i love systems like i also hate talking about design to people who like it gets to the point where you talk to so many clients about what typography is and what a word mark versus a logo is so i actually made a design 101 section on my site so that in case you've never worked with a designer before here's like design 101, like here's what different colors mean and how they affect people. Here's all the different types of fonts you might want to know for your logo. Here's what branding versus an identity means. Here's what a logo versus a wordmark versus an icon means. So I don't even have to talk to you about that. It's just business. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: See, so this, is, this is subtle genius. Anybody who is listening, this sort of, it sounds like accidentally, speaks to the fact that you can build authority as anybody by teaching something to somebody. So like you had these people who were coming up and like needed help, but probably didn't necessarily know all these things. You are the one teaching them. And suddenly you're like irreplaceable in their mind. They're like, well, this guy obviously knows what he's doing. So I certainly want to hire him, whatever his price is. If I can roughly afford it, I'm down. Exactly.
0: And it actually got to the point where every client I had was successful or wasn't they weren't inquiries anymore it was like I want to work with you Ooh,
1: that's cool I like that yeah
0: that's what I really liked before that it was just like okay how much does it cost for this for this for this how much would it cost and I'm like I hate having those conversations because they're so awkward <laughs>
2: I feel you on that. That is very smart. That whole idea of having like Design 101, like every freelancer needs to have that because no matter who right. you are, you're always going to be working at least with one client that won't exactly. know several of those terms.
0: Exactly. So. It just saves so much time, so much frustration. And I don't know what I would do without it. I probably would have quit branding along long before the vocal type.
1: So does that still exist for your services now? Not at the moment. I'm actually in the process of
0: rebuilding the vocal type site and that's going to be included in it. When I talk about systems, it wasn't just for projects. So as vocal type grew and I still had my brand consultancy, I had a form for everything. So I had a form if you just wanted to say hi. I had another form if you want to actually work with me. I had another form for interviews. I had another form for like speaking engagements. It was, it was just the whole thing.
2: Well, I'm sure you're like definitely high demand. So it's very clever to have that on there at this point. But yeah, you really just had dive in head first. I am so impressed. I feel like you were talking about how you're like convincing these clients to get this custom font that you would design. And I think that like partially, you know, I understand the motivation from your part getting some practices in, et cetera. How do you like explain to a client that that's valuable or do they kind of just run with it when you're like, I think this is a good idea. I also feel like you've pushed some boundaries. I looked at some of the fonts you did for those clients. How do you even start that conversation with clients that were just like, I think I want a brand that looks good. And you being like, well actually elevating your typography is, also very valuable
0: i tell them the story of this lady that i knew when i was younger one of my aunts used to own this expensive clothing store and she would tell people that i shop here because i don't want to see a duplicate of myself out there meaning like she didn't want to see someone wearing what she was wearing anywhere else she wanted to have her own unique identity mm. and by using a typeface that only you have access to does that
2: mm. I love that analogy, though. I haven't heard that before.
0: I thought that was just kind of genius in terms of, like, managing your own personal brand. (laughs) And that's kind of how I explain, like, what a custom typeface does.
2: Yeah. I mean, at the time when you were working on that, since you're doing, like, a hybrid type design and graphic design, were you (laughs) learning type design during that whole process of working with brands that maybe weren't so, you know, type design focused or, like, we talked to Daniel Nisbet about this a little bit earlier, like he said he just looked at every book he could on type design and scoured every resource. I feel like I've had a hard time teaching myself type design. It's getting easier. There's better resources out there today than there was five years ago or six years ago. How, technically, how did you even get started?
0: When I did my internship, I actually had the opportunity to rebrand the studio that I interned for. Oh, wow. And yeah, that was amazing. It um, seems like
1: but- a thing that you wouldn't normally give to an intern. Right,
0: <laughs> that's, that's why I was so shocked. They had been around since like 1999, 2000 or something like that. And it was like when they got started, they got so busy that they never actually had time to make a word mark and they just kind of had this icon. And that's all they had for 15 years. And I made a word mark based off of the custom type that was used to make their icon. And then I got so in awe with it cause I had never done that before. I'd like. The correlation between branding and font design, they, they didn't connect to me before this. After my internship was over, I actually decided to see what would happen if I turned this wordmark into a full font. It looked pretty bad, but <laughs> considering it was my first time making like something I would consider legitimate, it looked pretty good. <laughs> And then from there, it was more so like I had this basic understanding of how letters work, but like the dots didn't connect until I actually took the lead class. And then I was like, oh, wait, there are books on type.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Designing type is like my Bible.
2: (laughs) Karen.
1: (laughs) That's funny. So many people have now said that designing type is my Bible. I don't think she even understands
2: she's such like a quiet icon like hanging out in the back of all our lives and we're all like actually we we credit so much of our learning to karen Cheng. right
0: exactly
2: <laughs> that's awesome i mean i've definitely been there where i made fonts and illustrator before i feel like for so long i don't know if this was taught to you trey but like when i was doing graphic design in school all the professors even the type professors were like you guys don't even realize how hard it is to make a font there are so many difficult moving parts Mm. and like you guys think it's just drawing letters but there's this whole software you have to worry about and there's so many other things And they were always ambiguous about it so it obviously always seemed like a challenge that you would never be able to overcome but then but then like once you do it and okay yes technology has advanced it's become easier for us to access education tools on it but i think like once you actually start getting in glyphs and getting comfortable in a new environment like I do hope that that is like somewhat more encouraging than being left in the dark. Did you feel that when you started kind of using the right software and once you had one font, maybe it wasn't perfect, but then you felt like you had the momentum to keep going?
0: Definitely. Like I actually had a typography teacher who had us make a bitmap font, but we had to do it by hand. Like we had the grid paper and we had to make letters and and we couldn't stair step. And this was back in like, 2012, 2013, and I'm like, oh God, this is torture. The first thing I did was try to figure out how to make a bitmap font, but a cursive. This is all by hand. This is no illustrator, no nothing, just grid paper and a pen and a pencil. I'm like, God, this is torture. <laughs> because like every other graphic design class is all everything digital. So by this yeah. point, I'm like, I'm done with doing everything hands-on. But it wasn't yeah. until I actually got to work with type on the computer and actually dissect things and just kind of find out how things work. Then I got into it.
2: I feel like that's the easiest way is to start like reverse engineering.
0: Exactly. I, I,
2: I think that's kind of the beauty of learning type design these days. Were you considering going to school for it and then you had enough faith and you're like, Nah, I could do this on my
0: own. I wanted to go to school for it, but I didn't have enough faith in my wallet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> From those hundred dollar logo font projects.
0: Exactly. Oh, I could not afford to move to New York on that. Oh, <laughs> um, that was my biggest thing. And then what was a godsend when vocal type first started out, I was using an illustrator plugin called FontSelf. <laughs> mm-hmm. at first that was amazing. And then I like really learned type. It was like a stepping stone to understand how all like into drawing type, not actually making the font, but just like drawing type. It was like a stepping stone for that.
2: Yeah. Because like you can get familiar with Bézier curves and the actual formation, you know what I mean? It's the, it's using the software that makes the jump from like just doing nice lettering and like collections of letters to like one collection
0: exactly several beautiful letters
2: were there any type designers that like you were in contact with when you started vocal type or you were just like going at it
0: i was just going at it but i did actually when i was in college during my senior year actually um tau lemming actually came to speak oh wow and he had this whole exhibition of just like his type design process and he talked about it, and it was scary like this was before i actually <laughs> thought about making fonts he was like, Yeah, I spent seven years working on this lowercase g. And I'm like, I don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> like, I'm, it's two years now I've been working on the William Font family. And I'm, I'm like, uh, I just can't imagine it. But at the same time, is that having the freedom to take that long was kind of intriguing.
2: For those that don't know who Tal Lemming is, do you mind letting us know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, do you not know? I don't know. Hal <laughs> Lemon is amazing. He used to work for House Industries and right.
1: he actually has and commercial a- type and typo tech.
0: Exactly. And
1: he now owns Type Supply. Oh. He helped invent the UFO font format that we, well, yep. not everybody uses, but a lot of people use. Yep. And he In- helped invent the WAF web format too. Exactly.
2: I'm learning something new from this podcast today.
1: (laughs) He's honestly, he's like, he's one of those font engineer types that help define the technology, I feel like, behind font software.
0: And then his logos are amazing too. He's like, type everything it seems like is in his wheelhouse. Like logos, not just font design. And I feel like that's definitely not me at the moment.
2: (laughs) How long have you been working on William now? Two years?
0: Two years. I actually started from scratch after the first year.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Wait, I'm Wait, so... you worked on
0: it for a year and then scrapped it? Yep. I realized I had my interpolations were wrong. So I decided to just start from scratch. Wow. <laughs> it's almost done now. Hopefully like first, second week of March, I'll be releasing it. I'm actually just finishing up the condensed width, but the regular wide widths are done.
2: Is this your biggest type family?
0: Oh, definitely. There are going to be 27 fonts in this family. <laughs> Oh I've God. never done anything this huge.
2: I've gotten a sneak peek of it and I really yep.
0: love it. Um,
2: <laughs> I, I also know that like I'm taking this information for granted, but I'm like really just inspired and fascinated by their inspiration and figured it might be a good time to talk about the data portraits. What is inspiring William since it's such a big undertaking for you?
0: Definitely. So they were created by the sociologist, author, activist, W.E.B. Dubois. And they were created as a part of this series of giant poster sized infographics for the Paris World Fair in 1900. And basically these infographics were created to show how the institution of slavery was still kind of hindering progress within the black community. And what's so amazing to me is just like, not only the infographics themselves and like they look so modern, even though they were created 20 years before Bauhaus, the type is so different. It's sans serif, they even have reverse italics that just seems so futuristic and just like, <laughs> I, like I feel like he came to 2020 and decided to go back to 1900 and release <laughs> these. Like...
2: <laughs> That's the best description because I literally feel the same way about it. And it, it just blows my mind that like, first of all this hasn't been revived at all because it's incredible and like so unique and has so much characteristic but yeah again feels so modern
0: it would feel alien to me if i were in that time period
2: right okay (laughs) have you so i'm sure you've done so much research i know that's a really big part of your process that we're going to talk about but um just so i can geek out because i finally have someone to geek out about this do you also hypothesize that Bauhaus people saw the data portraits and like it is still like we can't we can't say oh, yes. sure but like how did that not influence people in Europe it was at a world's fair
0: okay so this is this is really funny and kind of it bothers me a lot I was giving a talk about this sometime last year at some company and someone in the chat was like Bauhaus was there and I'm like how do you know this and they wouldn't answer wow I'm a time traveler. Right? (laughs) So supposedly Bauhaus was actually there to actually see these. I mean, it would make sense that they were, but I don't actually know. And,
2: you know, we're talking about the type, but even just like the graphic nature of all this, like the mechanics. And the colors
0: are Bauhaus. I
2: know. It's all primary. And if anyone like looks at infographics, none of them looked like this, which is so nuts. They all had type that was like that really flourishy, like copper plate calligraphy inspired right. engravers type and like all black and white and shading and like so meticulously like like European in that way right and and this is just totally not that and like so I easily hope. like a clear line through to where we are in current data graphics it just yeah
0: it's it's amazing I mean it's like it's been my most tedious and annoying project but it's also like the most amazing and just kind of fulfilling.
2: (laughs) I can imagine it's so gratifying. I mean, now we're seeing all these data portraits and I feel like even like the history of the data portraits is getting so much more recognition these days. I I really do feel like it's going to be really big when William comes out and I cannot wait to see how people use it because I'm sure they'll use (laughs) it in like a myriad of different ways. So we've talked a little bit about your process before independently and like each typeface do has so much research put into it. I admired that so much, especially when you're coming in from the angle of giving voices to underrepresented groups. What are your go-to resources for the early research part of the process? Like, are you looking at old documents? Are you looking? I also heard that you only use typefaces that were involved in protest signs that several people carried or that like a whole group of people carried on like one graphic so I just like I gotta know like where you start because you come from so many different angles too and like so many different movements.
0: I'm always looking at online archives a bunch of different libraries a lot of university libraries if I can gain access but as far as like actually designing type my process is like 25% research, 25% design, 25% research, 25% design. When I first started Vocal, I made the terrible mistake of doing all my research in the beginning and then like just designing. I finished this font that I loved. It was like the first serif font I ever made through Vocal. And I think it was like two or three days before I was going to release it. I found out that the person the font was inspired by and named after was actually an FBI informant. (laughs) So what a turn so, of events. <laughs> exactly. So that didn't get released. <laughs> and it's just kind of buried deep, deep, deep in the archives of my laptop where I will never hopefully see it again. <laughs> so that's when my process is like that. So yeah. was it
2: always just research ahead of time and then design, 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 and then just package it all up with the research and release?
0: Exactly. But not anymore.
1: <laughs> I'm curious so, how you, yeah. how you categorize, like, okay, I'm only going to do some research. Like, how do you know when to stop researching and start designing and when to go back to researching and design more?
0: A lot of my research is image-based. So in the beginning, I'm always looking for those image references. During the second part of that research phase, I'm looking for like actual text-based research to form this narrative around the font. And then I might come across some more images that I didn't find the first time that will help inevitably influence the end result of the design.
2: I'm curious, do you ever research like the tools that they were using to make the protest signs or if there was like any sort of markers that, that meant that like the endings to letter forms looked a certain way or?
0: Definitely, not necessarily the tools, but just kind of like what they had access to or okay. like the materials that were used, for example, You can kind of tell what a person has access to based off of what their protest signs are made of. For example, if you look at a lot of Black Lives Matter protests, the majority of the signs are on cardboard and either just like a black marker or stencils and spray paint because it usually don't have a lot of art supply stores in minority communities usually just have hardware stores where you can find it pretty much what you need. But if you look at like the Women's March on Washington, for example, you see all these colorful poster boards that are probably way more expensive (laughs) than than cardboard. Um, You just see like a lot of like, I wouldn't say prettier, but just signs that look expensive. (laughs) Mm.
2: Interesting.
0: When I was researching the Martin font, actually, I found out that before Dr. King joined the Memphis sanitation Strike of 1968, all their signs were actually stenciled (laughs) and everyone like used the same stencils before they were actually printed.
1: Wow.
2: That's pretty interesting. That kind of spins your conceptual work into such an interesting territory of like actually having to think about the people constructing these letter forms, not just like, yeah, I followed the rules of vertical stress for type design that I've learned with the proper overshoot. I'm sure like when you're actually constructing the typefaces you're not necessarily bound to like type design roles is that correct
0: yeah the first font designer I fell in love with was Bertold Wolp in the font Albertus and oh, wow beautiful
2: like,
0: right one and of my favorites exactly and like Pegasus like they're just amazing but like I feel like because I fell in love with the fonts like that I didn't know this at the time but he didn't actually use consistent strokes throughout anything. Like he didn't have a system for anything.
2: (laughs) Really? Albertus is, um, for like our listeners, I mean, it's the stoic kind of, it reminds you of like chiseled stone type, classic, really classic Roman ladder forms. So for you to say that, that's really surprising to me. I feel like it's just like the pinnacle of like elegance and stoicism and typography.
0: Exactly. I was reading the story behind the revival of it. I think it was Albertus, Nova, and Mm -hmm. Pegasus. And the designer was just talking about how it was so strange, like having so many different things going on and like characters that would normally relate to each other, no longer related to each other. Some Mm. stroke widths were different, but at the same time, when you're just looking at it, everything feels consistent, even though technically it's not. And I feel like that kind of applies to vocal, even though I I didn't think of this when I first fell in love with Albertus. (laughs) But it's kind of like that. Like some things, even though they should relate, they usually don't.
1: Have you gotten feedback from like the type community about that fact? I haven't. It's weird because I feel like type
0: standards kind of change over time. For example, I feel like this was pre-digital, but like Lowercase fonts have like way thinner strokes than uppercase characters, like noticeably different. And I feel like with digital type, the differences are smaller. Even though they're still there, they're just less noticeable. So I feel like in that regard, because I'm basing my work over pre-digital fonts and typography, it's kind of understandable why (laughs) things don't really line up.
2: I mean, Micah, I think it's pretty interesting you talk about the the type community, if they have said anything, because for me, Trey, like, I think you're influencing and going to be influencing a lot of type designers in the future. They're definitely going to be looking at your work. And I think that's an interesting thing that they may be able to learn from your work is that breaking the rules a little bit and finding those inconsistencies gives character to typography that I think we like haven't necessarily seen for a really long time because everyone's trying to just like make really modular type that looks as consistent as possible, but then obviously at the end kind of loses the character that we used to see from type many decades
0: ago. Exactly, exactly. I'm still learning things about like fonts I've already made, like Martin, for example. And it still kind of blows my mind. So Martin was a letterpress font. I don't know who designed it, but I've actually found a version of it in one American type founder's specimen and then another one in a Hamilton wood type specimen. And Mm. the only difference is, it's like people who printed the I Am A Man signs and the Honor King in racism signs, I don't know if they put too much ink, I don't do letterpress, but I'm I'm imagining that they they put too much ink and it actually made the letters bolder than the original specimen. And the original specimen actually has a bit more contrast, like the curves are a bit cleaner. Like, I'm not sure if it was like, if the blocks were used a lot or if there was too much ink, but I feel like it's the posters that give the font character, but the original specimen is still super quirky.
2: That investigation process is like, so unique a lot of typography these days people like to reference the production of yesteryear like for example ink traps i feel like me and mike are talking about how we see ink traps like everywhere and we're just like but why does this font have ink traps and like right. is that necessary i feel like we just discussed this recently actually but actually <laughs> thinking about the specimens and the different stages of a typeface in that more in-depth look is pretty interesting
0: definitely definitely um and it's weird because a lot of these things i just kind of happened upon <laughs> like i just kind of came across the hamilton wood type specimen and then started investigating i actually just bought it on ebay and found it i just collect old font specimens and it was just in there i'm like oh my god i was grabbing my chest and having a heart attack and all that
2: i'm sure you have a great collection of like ephemera and documentation and oh my gosh you should put that somewhere
0: (laughs) definitely definitely right now like i know we talked a little bit about like kind of people doing the modular thing and just kind of like making up type. I still do that, but it's just like something personal because the the political nature of all my work is just so emotionally draining that sometimes I'll just like make
1: a font for fun.
2: That's very fair and understandable.
1: <laughs> That's, I find that fascinating because like you're th- the emotionally draining research is still for a font. And the way that you then turn around and, like, relax and have fun is making a different font. (laughs) That's like, like, that's amazing. That's a wonderful thing. I feel like you approach type design as an art. And I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of professionals in the industry at the moment, I think are approaching type design, uh, like engineers and there's a lot of value to that and i think you've learned some things from that but it seems to me that like you just have this artistic expression inside of you that like you can't help but pay attention to and get out and so you've like built some systems around outputting something from that but it comes from like a need for you to be an artist
0: definitely like even when I was running Studio Seals, I actually had a private website called Become, where I would just kind of post personal projects. Like, I wonder what it would look like if I took this ampersand and put it on the face of a watch. Just like That's random cool. projects that I just needed to get out and put somewhere.
1: This is like <laughs> the second secretive website that you've mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Are all these things still online?
0: I'm actually in the process of rebuilding it and just kind of like making it public i was actually just working on the logo for it last week and it's actually a double s ligature that has never been digitized from avant-garde
2: oh my heart <laughs> i love avant-garde so much right? <laughs> oh my god right? all the ligatures are too good they're too creative and like they're just so like sleek and kind of like hidden in there and like unassuming. exactly
0: i just can't oh. believe i've never seen it. like it's it's weird i feel like it was just something he made for himself (laughs) because it's not usable within the context of avant-garde the height and a centers are like double the height (laughs) of all the other characters you would have this giant letting space (laughs) if you were actually use this character within like spelling out something i'm
2: glad you see the beauty in it
0: (laughs) definitely definitely like I thought it was really cool, Um, Clem type. I'm not sure if you've seen their Kickstarter. It was like looking at letters as art. Mm. No. No, I missed that. It was really cool. It was just like pages and pages of individual characters. And it was just like looking at the letter as art. And I thought that was just super beautiful.
2: Yeah. Trey, you work on like a lot of things. I feel like I didn't even know that you just did so much and like so much output and like so much research time. My mind's a little bit blown. Do you ever get burnout?
0: Mm, That's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, like, oh, that's an interesting answer yeah uh, so it's weird like people think i'm just like at my computer doing things constantly but i'm actually like i have movies on in the background and i'll take like a five minute break and look
1: up and i'll look back down and keep working how much of your day is spent doing that
0: about 70
1: percent of 70 percent of the 24 hours that exist in a day yeah
0: like i i probably work about 14 hours a day at the same time i'm playing video games with my dad for an hour i'm eating for probably another hour and then sleeping for the rest
2: interesting okay you never come to a point where you're like oh my god i'm so exhausted i need to take like a week off
0: oh definitely it's just a matter of when can i do that (laughs) that's that's the question
2: (laughs) yeah you're a high in demand dude but Oh my gosh. I mean, all the like websites and typefaces and research and like into this conversation being like, I'm exhausted for you.
1: I mean, that's kind of what's interesting. So like you obviously have a lot of client or potential client and like business things going on. You're working on new fonts all the time that you are releasing for your own business you are also obviously doing at least a handful of personal projects like the ones that you were just talking about and i imagine like based on what you just said like you don't often say you know what i'm taking the weekend off right right and yet you don't know if you if you've hit burnout <laughs>
0: it's weird it's like okay let me back up i wasn't like this before the pandemic let me say that i was That's no i I actually took breaks before the pandemic and like went out to restaurants and went to the gym. And it was like, during the pandemic, I don't want to hear about it anymore.
1: <laughs> mm. So I'm just going to work. Okay. So this has been like a relatively, I was going to say relatively short-lived, but like it's right. also been a year. Right. And how do you feel in comparison to before the pandemic in in terms of like how much you're working? Does that oh. feel better to just like always be doing stuff? at the moment oh definitely i i get that from my dad too he doesn't stop he works seven
0: days a week too (laughs) and if he's not working like when it snows because you know they they can't work and he'll just go walk around and see what can i do to this machine he just walks around because he can't sit still and i feel like i got that a lot of that from him
1: but you're such a calm guy that it doesn't seem like a like a restless anxious kind of thing it's just like i like keeping busy i'm gonna keep doing stuff yeah, exactly. My dad's just like that.
2: That work ethic. I didn't know those things could be genetic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to keep going with this. Like how do you prioritize what to work on with that variety of of type of work that you're doing? Especially when some of it's like just for you and like some no. of it is so future facing like you working for 2 years on William like How do you make sure that that stays a priority when other stuff is knocking at your door and like you get kind of bored and you wanna work on this other personal project? Like, how do you juggle those priorities?
0: My clients pretty much come first. And the things that I do for vocal and for myself are pretty much weekend or late night things, but definitely my client work comes first. And if I get frustrated with my client work, then I'll probably (laughs) work on one of my own projects. But like, I get bored really quickly. So I I jump from project to project quite a bit. And then by the time I get back to what I was working on originally, I might come up with a new idea inspired by
1: something else I was working on or researching. Okay, that's interesting. And that makes sense.
2: Okay, I guess besides that typeface we were talking about earlier, where you had to abandon it, do you always follow through on your personal projects and vocal stuff? Do you ever abandon projects in other contexts?
0: Definitely. I have uh, definitely abandoned personal projects. Some things either look better when I sketch them out versus when I digitize them. And it's like, that's not gonna work. Or I'll make it on the computer and then make it in real life and it doesn't look like how I imagined it, so I'll abandon it. But like vocal stuff usually doesn't get abandoned unless it's like something huge that I missed, like with that one font in particular. Vocal stuff doesn't get abandoned. Sometimes it just takes a bit longer. With vocal, I feel like it's an iterative process versus With my personal projects, I don't have much time for iterations.
1: Do you consider Vocal to be like a client?
0: Kind of. Yeah. Something
1: about the way you said that just made me feel like you're talking about your own project, but it's Vocal's project and not yours.
0: I try to keep this balance of how much of myself I put into Vocal because like... Vocal was never meant to be about me. It was meant to be about this end goal of diversifying design. Mm -hmm. And that's not just for me. So in that regard, I have to balance like how much of my personal self should be within the brand, within each font that I make and things like
1: that. That's interesting. And that definitely makes sense. That must be difficult.
0: A little bit, but at the same time, it's a bit more fulfilling (laughs) than like, I feel like the work I was doing before Vocal.
1: Yeah okay that's interesting what would you say are like some of your big goals that you have not reached yet either with vocal or with your personal work or with client work
0: big goals Ooh, that's a tough one
1: there's a lot of things
0: i want to do with vocal at some point i don't know when that's going to be but like lately i've been working with a lot of publishing companies who are like, we're buying your fonts. We might as well have you lay them out too. Cause you know how to use them better <laughs> than anyone else. Hmm. So I've been doing like a lot of book covers, magazine spreads, editorial design. One thing that I want to do eventually is actually make Vocal a design agency, but just with more control over exactly what I put out. Like brand identities were so draining, but I would be cool with just doing a logo cause Vocal already does those like every other font foundry. I would also be curious to see what it would look like if Vocal started like a media company that actually highlighted designers of different backgrounds and different perspectives and not just unique work. Hmm. Uh, I always thought that would be kind of interesting. So there's a lot of big things that I want to do with Vocal, uh, but not necessarily in terms of like one dream project or dream client or anything like that.
2: I think that's almost more powerful, the goals that you have in mind rather than thinking about like the dream client. I think that your goals are very much about this vision that you have. And I'm so impressed because there are like so many types of creatives out there. And I feel like you are clearly a visionary type of creative, but also a producer type of creative that can get a lot done and also have like much more bigger picture goals in in mind and i think that's like really unusual and i'm really excited to see the future of vocal type and where it goes i'm curious like any upcoming changes with vocal that we can expect to see in the coming like year like smaller dreams
0: oh definitely i am in the process of actually rebranding vocal type and launching a new website the identity i've kind of fallen in love with i think it's like one of the most beautiful type projects I've ever made, period. And I'm hoping to launch that within the next couple of months. I am launching William this year. I want it off of my back. I want it off of my plate. I want it out in the world because I'm done.
2: <laughs> Spoken well, like a true type designer. <laughs> right,
0: exactly. Because I started over like halfway through it being done. It was just like, oh. I don't work on this anymore, <laughs> but it's like now that I see it actually coming together and being more than I imagined, it as when I first started, it's becoming a bigger thing than I imagined, and I'm just excited to see how people use it because I can't imagine how I'd use it. There's this gratification that I feel when people buy and use my fonts versus actually designing something for a client. With a client, you have no choice but to use it because you paid for it and you're invested in it. But with a font, it's like it's a different type of pride knowing that people are buying it and using it and they didn't have to i'm just excited to see how people use william going forward Me too. that's an inspiring thought i like that
2: i have a final question and i think i'm curious now that we've had this whole conversation you know you're doing so much for the future of the type industry and I think design and diversifying design and getting you know voices heard that have otherwise been suppressed. I think that's a really major feat and it's, it's really exciting to hear your future ideas for it. What future do you hope for, for the type industry as a whole as we're moving forward? I think that there are small changes happening in the type industry, but I'm curious what you'd like to see.
0: I would like to see just more people of color in the type industry. I know there are a lot of type designers, but not like people of color who actually own a font foundry. I would like to see that going forward, like like selling on their own platforms and like actually designing type full time. Cause last I heard, I think there was only like 200 people in the world who actually designed type for a living, which kind of blew my mind. I'm like, what but the there's heck? So Where did
1: you <laughs> mean that? That's fascinating. Um,
0: I actually went to a type design lecture in DC year before last, I think it was. And they were just giving a talk about like the business of type. I was just kind of blown, blown away like that. I just couldn't believe that. I know there are a lot of graphic designers who are like dipping their toes into actually designing type, but I would just like to see more people take that next step and make the type design industry more diverse.
2: I mean, I think I mentioned this earlier, but like, you're one of the very few self-taught type designers that can make a living off of making type and using type it'll be interesting to see once type design education becomes more accessible like when we're going to start seeing that shift of a more diverse group of people being able to own a type foundry and you know get, being taken very seriously and make a living off of type because yeah i agree it's like there's there's probably only a handful of people that can do it and it's all a handful of people that want to you know a higher education experience that gave them access to type design education but also like the confidence to be like well I went to blah 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 I clearly can start my own foundry I can have that autonomy whereas like it's less common and almost very rare to see someone that doesn't have that higher education that have the confidence to open a foundry like you did and to like have the autonomy to like make a living off of it
0: definitely definitely and I, I hate to say this, but there are some upsides to this pandemic, <laughs> like I, I just feel it's weird that all of a sudden accessibility and inclusivity has been made possible just because you couldn't go someplace now, <laughs> like, like the fact that all of a sudden you can actually take a type class online because of the pandemic, that's just so kind of messed up to me. <laughs> to me, but at the same time, I feel like that's kind of a means of opening doors to like a broader audience of people who can inevitably become professional type designers. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to see how that turns out going forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, even the international aspect, I mean, type design schools, there's a few on the coasts in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. a handful in Europe. There's probably very little in other (laughs) continents and countries, and I feel like That's something that we're like, oh, that's just how it is. But it doesn't have to be that way.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Like, I feel like the idea that teaching type has to be this brick and mortar institution, that idea of that is kind of being chiseled away at slowly, but surely. And I'm just excited to see how people take advantage of that. Me too. Well put.
2: Oh, wow. I think that was a lot. (laughs) No, that was good. I mean, that it's very real. And thinking about the type industry as a whole, I think that's like an important step moving forward is like, where are we going? And in like a meaningful way, how should we be moving forward? One final note before we close the interview is that we had an announcement to make during the podcast. And that is that trey you're going to be releasing a font with the league and it's going to be open sourced so we're gonna you know have it on our catalog but also it's available for people to download and modify and um kind of learn from which i think is why open source is so special and we maybe get a sneak peek of which font it's gonna be and a little bit about it before it comes out with our catalog
0: definitely it's a font that you may have already seen It is already free through the vocal type site, but it is not currently open source, but it will be once we release it through the league. And the font is actually called The New Black. It was designed in collaboration with this organization in Chicago last year for Black History Month, and will now become open source through the league. It's one of my favorite fonts so far. I had so much fun just designing some of the crazy ligatures that you normally wouldn't see. <laughs> um, there are a lot of different alternates and I'm just excited to see what people create with it. I
2: mean, we're thrilled to have one of your fonts in the catalog, and I think hopefully we get to see it being as widely used as like the rest of your fonts are in your catalog right now, and see how people open it up in uh, font design software and take a look at it, learn from it, especially if you have crazy ligatures in there. What kind of ligatures can we expect?
0: Oh, it's weird. It's it's almost like, the font is almost like Euro, Euro style kind of sort of, but like, like, it's a bit bolder and has alternates with ink traps in it, and you start to see them within some of the ST ligatures. There are just some crazy ligatures in there. And it's, it's just one of my favorite fonts, the alternates al- alternate between like having these more solid forms versus having ink traps. And there's just like a lot of versatility with it that I can't wait to see how people use.
2: Have you seen any instances where people have used it out in the wild world? I know it's really hard to track down like fonts and use basically of people's type, but curious what you've seen.
0: Not in the world world, but in the social media world, I have.
2: <laughs> oh, exciting. And-
0: Definitely. Um, It's been really amazing to see so many people use it throughout their social media campaigns for social justice and just in so many other ways. Like I'm always amazed when people use vocal type fonts for things outside of their cultural and historical context. Like one of my fonts was used for this brand identity for a pasta shop.
2: (laughs) I saw it and they used it so well.
0: (laughs) I know. It was so amazing. I'm like, whoa, I did not expect that. And then like When I see it in use like that, I'm like, oh, my God, it does look like noodles.
1: (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about like the inspiration and research that went into it in this collaboration?
0: The organization that I worked with was called The Art of Blackness. They are based in Chicago. And with that, I wanted to make something that was not only bold, but had a connection to Chicago. It's also revolves around Martin Luther King and his fight for equal housing in Chicago back in the 1960s. And it's actually based on this giant rally banner that at first I thought was an actual font. And then I started to see like a few hand painted techniques that were involved. Like the characters weren't actually the same width, they weren't the same height. And I was like, oh my God, that is hand painted. It's so beautiful. It's so well done. I have to make this a font.
2: Can we expect like some of um, the Im- maybe like imperfections or inconsistencies throughout the letters that you kind of mentioned were in some of your other typefaces?
0: Not as many. It's weird. I'm, I'm always kind of battling with like, how much character can I keep? and how much character are designers willing to use and put up with. Uh, So that's always like a struggle, but you'll probably see a few alternates in the back that are a little bit off.
2: Okay. I'm really excited to do a deep dive into this now that I know all these
0: tips and tricks. (laughs) Definitely, definitely.
2: Well, we're super thrilled for that to be published. I'm super thrilled with this interview. Oh my gosh, (laughs) I feel like I learned so much. I learned so much about your process that I didn't know about and, you know, type design and loved hearing all of your thoughts. And I just, I can't wait to see what's in store for the future of Vocal and what you do. I do think like one day I'm going to be looking back on this and being like, I got to interview Trey Seals and like (laughs) the whole world is going to know who you are. So this has been a really great pleasure, I think, for me and Micah.
0: Definitely. I appreciate it. And just to, I can't believe how long it's been since I actually took my first and only type design class through the league, and now I'm actually on the podcast.
1: It's just kind of amazing. (laughs) Shoot, we're all just gushing over each other
2: nothing bad about that trey thank you so much for your time i know you are super busy i know you have events like every week that you're attending and talking about your process so i can't tell you how thankful we are that you carved out time to talk with us and to meet with us we're so excited to uh move forward with the collaboration coming up and i think there's a lot of exciting stuff in store so everyone stay tuned and you know there's the there's the font but there may be other things so very exciting
0: definitely thank you all for having me this was Amazing and definitely extremely fun. <laughs>
2: Amazing. Do 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 do